0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
1: 18 plus. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe
0: Welcome to Pax Britannica, Season 3, Episode 16, To Hell or Barbados. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Dr. Samuel Hume. It's my privilege to welcome the new additions to the House of Lords. The Earl of Amar, Widley Scuds. The Earl of Clare, McWright. Viscount Scott. And Baron Edward. The Earl of Hampton, Alexander Travis, is now the Marquess of Hampton. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. The Earls and Marquess also get access to the bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Last time, we covered the settlement part of the Cromwellian Settlement of Ireland. Roughly half of all Irish land had been seized by the government and was then redistributed to civilian adventurers, demobilised and serving soldiers and officers, and the Old Protestants, formerly known as New English Colonists of the Tudor and Stuart eras. As we saw, what followed was not the widespread colonisation of Ireland with English Protestants, As the Republican regime had planned. The messiness of the settlement, the uneven nature of the land redistribution, and the sheer unwillingness of the expected tens of thousands of English colonists to become colonists meant that Ireland became neither Anglicised nor Protestant. Instead, the vast majority of Irish land remained the home of Irish Catholics, just with an ascendant Protestant landlord class largely centred in the towns or across the Irish Sea, who held all the political, financial and military power. Today, we'll take a look at the last major elements of the Cromwellian settlement, religion and the transportation of Irish Catholics out of Ireland. As we've covered over the previous episodes, the Commonwealth and then the Protectorate were determined to prevent another Irish rebellion. This was one of their motivations for the land confiscations and the transplantation of Catholic landowners. Through confiscation, they would lose much of their wealth, and through transplantation and dispersion, their connections to their tenants and to their elite peers would be broken. Ordinary Catholic Irish were not viewed as threatening rebellion by themselves. It was only when the poor dears were led astray by their social betters but it wasn't just the secular Irish leadership that was a threat. One class of Irish society which both Commonwealth and Protectorate specifically targeted was the Catholic clergy. Now this was not new in itself. Ever since the Reformation, Catholic priests in England and Ireland, as well as Scotland, faced official persecution, the intensity of which came in peaks and troughs. But the Commonwealth took the persecution of Catholic priests very seriously. As we'll see later, they were specifically targeted for transportation, either to the colonies or just out of the country. The government also threatened, and carried out, executions of those who refused, as examples for the rest. As I covered in the episode on the Tory War, Catholic priests were listed in an act of parliament alongside Tory bandits and wolves as beasts which needed to be hunted down and destroyed, because of the danger they posed to public order. Mass was forbidden to be held. Very soon after the reconquest, 26 of Ireland's 27 bishops left for the continent. The 27th, the Bishop of Kilmore, remained the only Catholic Irish bishop in Ireland from 1655 until his death. More than a thousand priests left Ireland for exile following the example of their bishops, but more stayed. Many of these were caught and arrested, then given passports and told to leave. Of course, many chose to stay anyway to tend to their flocks, and in 1655 the government decreed that any priests under the age of 40, who had not already left by their own choice, would be arrested and interned on the islands of Inishmore and Inishbofin. They would be held here until passage across the Atlantic could be arranged. More in a moment priests were executed if caught on the run, or reported as having given mass, but these were never large numbers. After 1651, the number of official executions of priests were in the single digits each year. There were likely extrajudicial killings not recorded, but it's not a bloodbath. The Commonwealth didn't want the priests to become martyrs, but just to leave. As with other elements of this period, The extreme violence of previous years, particularly the Rebellion and then the Cromwellian Conquest, influences perception of the whole period. And there were high numbers of clergy executed during military campaigns. 19 in 1649, 22 in 1651. And as we saw, Catholic clergy were targeted by English troops when castles and towns were taken after refusing surrender. Spurlock has argued that these clergy were killed like they were officers who had refused surrender. In this view, the English viewed them as rebels deserving execution for fomenting and supporting rebellion, not for heresy. Of course, that didn't stop Catholics viewing priests killed by Protestants as martyrs, and they joined 22 lay Catholics nominated for beatification between 1651 and 1652. These lay nominees were, by and large, Catholic elites executed for their role in the war. Because that's what this was, an attempt to get rid, one way or another, of another class of potential troublemakers who were viewed as a whole as having orchestrated the rebellion and supported the Confederacy. The Irish clergy also had a worrying royalist streak, urging their flocks to hold true to the Stuart dynasty, to young Charles, and to Rome. It was, Spurlock argues, overwhelmingly an issue of foreign jurisdiction. It was about politics, not pulpits. But there was still religious hostility towards the Catholic Church from independence. Anything that complicated a Christian's worship of God or restricted their freedom of conscience, be that the episcopacy of the Church of Ireland or England, the elders of Presbyterianism, or the superstition of the Catholic Church, needed to be dismantled. But despite the repression, Catholic clergy continued to operate in Ireland throughout the Commonwealth and Protectorate periods. Catholics gathered in forests, or up in the hills, around mass rocks, to hear mass from fugitive priests. This was much more common in rural areas of Ireland. In the province of Leinster, which holds the capital of Dublin and received the greatest amount of government attention, there were very few priests at large. But elsewhere in Ireland, in the countryside far from Protestant-dominated towns, away from the patrolling Commonwealth soldiers, the priests endured. Had there been serious effort to convert the native population, Protestant preachers would have had a serious advantage over previous attempts. The other elements of the settlement, especially the dispossession and transplantation of Irish Catholic landowners, removed Catholic elites who had, in previous decades, Resisted conversion of themselves and those below them. Whether Gaelic or Old English, a lot of pressure was applied and resources spent by Catholic elites to keep their faith alive. Catholic priests, even during times of focused repression, were protected and guarded by elite patrons, either literally hiding them on their estates or by applying political pressure and calling in favours with the Dublin government to look the other way. Now, by and large, those guardians were gone. Catholic priests on the run complained about just that, saying they had nowhere to stay, because many wealthy Catholics had been transplanted, and those who remained didn't want to risk punishment up to and including execution for hiding them. Many of these remaining households were already ignoring government orders to transplant, with execution a possibility for them if they made trouble. Don't break the law, when you're already breaking the law. That meant priests had to keep moving, but that was itself difficult. Ireland was an occupied country now, and mounted patrols and checkpoints on roads were always on the lookout for priests and the bounty which came with them. The laity the clergy left behind, especially in Dublin and near towns, conformed to a Protestant faith in large numbers. Of course, it's probably fair to view this as a form of protection. If you renounced Rome, the risk of transplantation or other punishment was reduced. But outward conformity is often the foundation of mass conversion. If matched with energetic proselytising, insincere conformity could soon become sincere. This is all to say that the infrastructure which had been a bulwark for Irish Catholicism since the Reformation had been effectively destroyed. The board was as clear as it had ever been for Protestant conversion on a scale that had long been hoped for, but never achieved. And yet, despite the conditions, mass conversion to Protestantism didn't happen. Not on a broad scale, at least. Historians have long debated why Catholicism remained in Ireland despite centuries of Protestant rule, and different arguments make sense for different times and circumstances. But during the Commonwealth, This is partly explained by the ideology of the Protestant sects, which were now in positions of power in Ireland. Firstly, there was not a single Protestant faith being imposed from on high. The ascendancy of the independents in the army, and now in government, ruled out any such uniformity. Every flavour of Protestantism was competing with the others for converts. The army had brought their preachers with them, both official and lay preachers, and ministers from among the English settlers were backed by the government. When Henry Cromwell arrived in 1655, there were 110 preachers receiving an official government salary. Three years later, that number had more than doubled to 250. Many of these were various shades of English independent – Calvinist, Baptist, Quaker and more – but there were some Scots Presbyterians on the payroll too. The second reason Catholic conversion was limited was because many of these strands of Protestantism had predestination and the godly at their centre. The godly, the elect, those chosen since the first day to be predestined for heaven, naturally had an exclusive in-club mentality. We are chosen by God, everyone else is different shades of damned. There was little desire to admit more people into this exclusive club, but if anyone was going to be included, then they were going to be English Protestants who accepted the correct creed. The ministers were, by and large, seeking converts to their true sects from other Protestants, not from Catholics. By and large, preachers stayed in the urban centres, which were now havens of Protestantism, attempting to win over other Protestants, Especially from among the army. Irish Catholics were, essentially, beyond saving. They'd had plenty of time to discover the errors of Rome, and they'd made no progress. Other Protestants might be mistaken in their practices, but that could be worked on. Catholics were written off. And we can partly see this by the lack of other efforts. There was still, despite multiple attempts, no complete vernacular Bible in Irish. The New Testament had been translated into Irish and printed in 1602, and it was another 80 years before it was reprinted. The Old Testament was only finished and printed in 1685, and the first entire Bible was published in Irish in 1690. The flood of printed pamphlets and books during the Wars of the Three Kingdoms had built a vast print industry, especially in London. There was clearly capacity to publish even just a new edition of the already translated New Testament, if not a full Bible, if the translation could be made. An Irish vernacular New Testament could have been in every church on the island, with just a little government support. When the Westminster Assembly produced the Directory for Public Worship in 1644, part of the joint Anglo Scottish attempt to reform the Church of England, Parliament had the Welsh translation started that same year. It could be done, but it wasn't. Partly, this was down to prejudice against the Irish language, with the expectation that of course the Irish would learn English, and partly it was due to a mentality that the native Irish were simply beyond salvation. Like with other aspects of Anglicisation, the new Protestants saw the Irish rebellion as a providential sign. Irish Catholics had spurned English religion and customs, and then they had ignored God's providence by continually backing a dynasty he had clearly forsaken. If they saw the light and converted to the true religion, great, but there would be no substantial effort to see that happen. I mentioned a couple of new sects a moment ago, the Baptists and the Quakers. We will cover the details of these faiths another time, especially as they become politically important, but it's worth a moment to see how these new radical strands of Protestantism affected English rule in Ireland. Up until 1653, the Presbyterians in Ulster had posed the greatest religious threat to the Commonwealth government in Ireland. Their networks across the North Channel between Ireland and Scotland allowed coordination between political and religious dissidents in both countries, bound by the covenants. They would remain a source of concern for some time, especially in Scotland. But by 1653, the Baptists had taken their place as the chief concern of the government in Ireland. Baptists were highly placed in the army, which sailed over to Ireland, and the focus of Baptist conversion would remain on the soldiers and the new Protestant officials. Baptists were not interested in winning over old Protestants or Catholic Irish, it was the military government of Ireland which interested them. Baptist preachers found the Irish army to be very fertile ground. As I mentioned before, the Baptist creed was highly exclusive, and that resonated strongly with the new Protestant ascendancy. They were a minority in a land of popery, and baptism really appealed to that mindset. The military government helped spread the creed, with highly placed converts, the machinery of the state backed Baptist preachers. They received state salaries, official and unofficial protection, and had advantages denied to other Protestant sects. Increasingly, English government in Ireland was seen as synonymous with the Baptists, and that had consequences. The first was that it threatened public order. The Baptists were upfront about their exclusivity, and even English Protestants who weren't Baptists were getting annoyed at being shut out. The old Protestants were chief among these complaints, but Baptist sermons, as well as Quaker meetings, also offered political cover to critics of the government. Charles Fleetwood, when he was Lord Deputy, failed to see this, but Oliver Cromwell was more suspicious. One of the reasons his son Henry was sent to Ireland in 1655 was to find out if Baptists posed a political danger and how far the creed had spread. Henry discovered that, yes, it was a threat and its influence in the Irish army and government was vast. He recommended that his father immediately sack his brother-in-law, Fleetwood, for his negligence. Oliver Cromwell was more politically cautious, and instead eased Fleetwood out over the course of two years, while he promoted Henry to Major General and appointed him to the Irish Council. When Henry officially became Lord Deputy in 1657, he had then already built up a network of supporters. Henry Cromwell had gradually switched the base of the Irish government's support from the army to the old Protestants. Military government was removed from most Irish towns by 1656, and the civilian old Protestants were welcomed in from the cold. Official favour was abruptly withdrawn from Baptist ministers. Their salaries were reduced or stopped entirely, and those who remained on the payroll were usually transferred away from the largest Irish towns. Baptist officers in the army attempted to dislodge Henry, but when they failed, his dad was Lord Protector after all, many resigned their commissions by November 1656 and returned to England. Other than the Baptists, the other radical sect which caused trouble for the Irish government were the Quakers. The religious society of friends were less widespread than the Baptists, but they had a substantial following in Limerick. Like the Baptists, they were exclusive, and did not spread their faith to the bulk of the civilian population. But if anything, they were more disruptive for it. Central to Quaker theology was a social radicalism which sounded chaotic to many contemporaries. Like with the Baptists, we'll give the details of Quaker theology more attention in the future, but they refused to swear oaths or offer the usual forms of deference to their social superiors. They emphasised the personal nature of the divine, and exercised a confrontational style of public preaching. This scared the hell out of people, even many independents. Plus, their refusal to swear oaths or defer to authority was outright dangerous to public order. Just like the Baptists, we're going to see a lot more of the Quakers. America.
1: Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
0: Perhaps the most dramatic and infamous aspect of the Cromwellian settlement of Ireland was transportation. Unlike transplantation, which moved Irish Catholics within Ireland, transportation was an enforced exile from the island. As we covered earlier, sometimes this was exile to continental Europe, and in terms of raw numbers, that seems to have been the most common destination. The first group of transportees to consider are the soldiers. The defeated armies of the Confederacy and the larger contingents of Tories were offered terms of surrender which permitted them to leave. These terms were made out of practical concerns. Just as the peacetime governments of Ireland and Scotland had found, the idea of thousands of experienced fighting men sitting unemployed was just asking for future rebellion. For many soldiers, Service in foreign armies offered a much better life than remaining in their subjugated homeland, where their leaders were in exile or dispossessed, and with all the opportunities reserved for incoming English. In this context, it's no surprise that between 34,000 and 40,000 Irish Catholic soldiers took up the offer of service in continental armies. Spain was the main beneficiary of this exodus. Spain was one of the first Catholic powers to recognise the new Republican commonwealth. Despite their horror at the regicide, which was genuine, Spain had their own concerns, especially an ongoing war with France. That conflict had been part of the Thirty Years' War, but it would only end 11 years after the Peace of Westphalia. By recognising the new regime in London in 1650, Philippe IV of Spain essentially got first dibs on more than 20,000 hardened veteran soldiers. France soon followed suit. As did smaller Catholic states, and the Commonwealth was more than happy to welcome their recruiting officers into Ireland. Every soldier fighting on the continent was one less to pose a threat to English rule. That leads me to the Piedmontese Easter Massacre. This occurred in April 1655, when at least a thousand and possibly more than 5,000 Waldensian Christians were killed by soldiers of the Duke of Savoy. The details of what happened and why are beyond the scope of this podcast, but the reason I mention it is because the news of the massacre spread like wildfire through Protestant Europe. It was seen as a cruel result of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and, important for our purposes, had reportedly involved Catholic Irish soldiers. The massacre, and the involvement of Irish Catholics, reminded Protestants of nothing less than the Irish Rebellion, In English reporting, the Irish take pride of place as leading the worst of the killings and revelling in the torture of women and children. Charles Fleetwood, still in office at the time, implemented harsher policies against Catholics in response. This was the height of the calls for mass transplantation of all Catholic Irish. This is all to say that, though the transportation of Irish soldiers had moved the danger out of sight, they were never out of mind. With the soldiers exiled to the continent, let's turn to the clergy. Catholic priests and members of religious orders were, as we've already covered in this episode, targeted for particular repression under the Commonwealth and Protectorate, and this primarily involved transportation. Initially, the destination was Europe, but as the years went on, and the patience of the government wore thin, England's American and Caribbean colonies were deemed to be a more threatening fate than exile in Catholic Europe. Catholic priests would join the third group to be transported, which were, infamously, ordinary Irish Catholics. This was not a mass transportation policy, like many new Protestants ruthlessly advocated for, and as it has gone down in popular memory as being. In fact, the policy of colonial transportation predates Cromwell, and it was not a specifically Irish policy. For decades, in all three kingdoms, Anti-vagrancy laws permitted the authorities to arrest and transport the idle poor, or sturdy beggars, those deemed by parish and government officials as being capable of working, but who refused to work because of their moral failings. Obviously, that mindset ignores all the possible reasons why someone was facing poverty, not least the wider economy, a shortage of work, invisible disabilities, and everything else. But the early modern state lacked even the compassion of the DWP, and governments in all three kingdoms had long ago established laws which encouraged the transportation of the landless or the unemployed, especially men, but also women and children. The idea was that England, Scotland, and Ireland were overcrowded, and the American colonies were in need of people, so transportation and indentured service killed two birds with one stone. Of course, after more than a decade of war, plague, dispossession, unrest, banditry, the redistribution of most of the land and the overturning of the economy, Ireland had a lot of people in poverty, unable to find work and without a place to live. Even if the anti-vagrancy laws had been enforced equally across the Commonwealth, Ireland was in a much worse position than the other two former kingdoms. There were more people considered eligible for transportation and so more people were transported. Irish transportation, especially of civilians, was not an impersonal state affair. Below the level of government policy, which allowed for transportation as punishment and permitted certain numbers of people to be indentured, were private individuals looking out for their own pockets. English merchants who had interests in both Ireland and the Caribbean accelerated the transportation process they were catalysts and enablers of the policy their agents roamed ireland hunting for people to coax or coerce onto their ships some irish went willingly lured onto ships with the promise of a better life in the americas others were violently kidnapped forced at sword and gunpoint into the holds of bristol merchant ships especially during the tory war civilians targeted in counterinsurgency strategies could be transported to the colonies en masse. Transportation was also an alternative fate for Catholic landowners prosecuted for refusing to transplant. Prisons were emptied of convicts, and sentences of death could be commuted to transportation and indentured servitude in the colonies. But we shouldn't forget that just as in England and Scotland, indentured service was not seen solely as a punishment or something to be avoided passage to the new world, paid for by a fixed term of labour, and often with the promise of a parcel of land once you finished your term, was very appealing to many people. Of course, there was no shortage of unscrupulous agents who promised much but had no intention of delivering. The brutal nature of the work was brushed over, the harsh treatment they could receive from their overseers was not mentioned, and if the deal seemed too good to be true, and prospective Irish servants became suspicious that they weren't sailing to a land of milk and honey, many may have decided that it was still a better fate than remaining subjugated in Ireland. Multiple historians have complained that, quote, the distinction between voluntary, forced, and judicial processes is almost impossible to discern. Reported in contemporary accounts and becoming part of the Cromwellian legend as slave hunts, These private interests went beyond government instructions. The explosion in transportation, argues Heidi Coburn, reflected a developing consumer economy that embraced unregulated systems of exploitation in the expanding early modern world. Patrick Corish puts it more simply, it was commercial greed. There was money to be made, either directly in selling the contracts of indentured servants or from the plantations these servants were sent to work. That greed led to rivalry. The Bristol Merchant Adventurers, who appear to have played a central role in the transportation of Irish indentured servants, spent a lot of time and money fending off interlopers to their valuable trade. Oliver Cromwell does have a direct role in the policy. After the Battle of Preston, many captured Scottish soldiers were imprisoned and then transported to Barbados on his orders. The same occurred after the Battle of Dunbar and after Worcester. Famously, in the aftermath of Drahida, he reported to Parliament that he had ordered the surviving garrison, those not killed out of hand, to be transported to Barbados. But recent scholarship has tried to establish what parts of the Commonwealth's policy in Ireland, including transportation, can be put at the Lord Protector's door, and how much can be explained as individuals and interest groups exploiting the situation for their own gain. Accurate estimates of transported Irish are very hard to find, partly because the bulk of records were destroyed in the Irish Civil War, a problem which plagues all historians of Ireland. But some estimates place the number as low as 5,000 people, others go as high as 20,000. The late journalist Sean O'Callaghan claims in his book, To Hell or Barbados, that as many as 50,000 people were transported to the colonies under Cromwell, But the evidence doesn't support those numbers, and it's far from the only claim from that book which historians take issue with. Barbados may have received around 12,000 Irish indentured servants, with the other Caribbean colonies and Bermuda taking another 4,000. The colonies on the American coast received some too, but they didn't always take them willingly. New England resisted the transportation of any Irish Catholics but the other mainland colonies, especially Virginia, received many indentured Irish workers. Priests, in particular, were not welcomed. They were seen as potential leaders and troublemakers, as well as perpetuating the Catholic faith. And more than once, priests were ordered back onto the ship as soon as they stepped foot on land. Next time, we will return to the narrative, on a tour of those English colonies because though we've covered the last gasps of the wars of the Three Kingdoms in those kingdoms, we've left a loose end. This particular loose end had a royal title, a German accent, and was sailing at the head of a defected English navy, Prince Rupert of the Rhine. As we cover his escapades in the Atlantic, we will see how the Commonwealth tightens its grip over the English Empire, and prepares for their first international war with another European imperial power. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, the Marquess of Winchester, Christian Sebast, and the Earl of Exeter, Bruno Ekman. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to join their ranks and listen to the podcast without ads. For the price of a coffee a month, you can also receive the bonus content. Remember that you can join the mailing list to get news about the show by going to the link in the description. For other great podcasts on the Airwave Network, check out airwavemedia.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.